Hello and welcome to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer, a series featuring conversations with experts to share recent market developments, key insights and strategic inputs from around the globe. In each episode, we cut through the noise to bring practical advice and macro research on today's shifting economic and market landscape. Please listen to the important legal information at the end of this podcast. Hello and welcome. I'm Marianne Schenk, and I'm delighted to be speaking to Robert Hoiberg today, a professor of organizational behavior at IMD and a very frequent collaborator at Leadership Development for Julius Baer. Robert's research has been published in Harvard Business Review, MIT Sloan Management Review, Academy of Management, Learning and Education, and many other highly recognized publications. His article, The Future of Team Leadership is Multimodal, co-authored with Michael Watkins, was the most read piece of 2022 in MIT Sloan Management Review. Hello, Robert. Wonderful to have you here. Thank you, Marianne. Pleasure to be here. Robert, let's just cut to the heart of it. Are leaders born or are leaders made? That's a great question. It's one that many people ask me and always uh, tongue in cheek, always say, I think all leaders I know are born because that's how we know they're here. I think the real question behind the one, are they born or are they made, is whether there's some kind of innate quality that people have. Innate meaning that it's something that they are born with. I think that the Human Genome Project has yet to discover a leadership gene. But I do think, you know, some people have more talent for leadership than others, similar to piano playing. I take piano playing because I have zero talent for piano playing. But even those with a lot of talent, what they need to do is practice. They need to learn. They have need to have good instructors. They need to be constantly working on their qualities. And I think that is the most important thing we need to take away for leadership. No matter what your starting position is, it's something you need to be constantly working on, constantly learning from others, constantly getting feedback, and also having the courage to practice, reflect, and improve. At least it gives us leadership development people quite a good opportunity to work. Because if it was only born and they wouldn't have to learn anything, what would be our jobs? Which brings me to this next question. You are a professor of organizational development, of leadership. You have uh, at one time decided to go in this direction in your career. What was the deciding point and how did you uh, proceed? That's well, a very interesting question because we like to think people have deciding points, but it was very much a gradual process. Actually, I think the interest started when I was at the University of Nijmegen, which is in Holland, And one of the professors asked me to become a teaching assistant. The first time I was asked, I refused. But the second time, I did it. And it was absolutely fascinating to work with people in that particular case on their mediation skills. And what happened was, you know, I started getting this curiosity about it. Then I had an opportunity to be in the U.S. and also got the cultural curiosity Then doing a PhD, you get more of the intellectual curiosity. And when you bring those variables together, 
you know, it's the joy of doing research and teaching. Interesting. You started out in the Netherlands, I understand. Yes. Yeah. And then you moved in an international career, something many people are interested in, and also how they would go forward to make an international career. What was your steps? You already mentioned some points in it, but how did you concretely move forward in an international yeah. teaching career? Again, it's it's funny in the sense that was not like I had a great counselor and we made a plan and then I, I did international. Like I said, I became a teaching assistant, then got an opportunity to bring a group of students to uh, Leipzig, Germany, uh, right before the wall came down. And that was a fabulous. Then there was a visitor from the United States who invited me to come to the US. And I said, yes. And I think what happened was, You know, you make certain choices that bring opportunities. The question is, are you willing to pursue those opportunities? That's a great story. So professors are not born either. No, no for sure not. <laughs> They are also made. And it's also important for everyone to see opportunities. Because a lot of people might say, I never had an opportunity, but they might also have not spotted the opportunity. I think that's a fantastic point. I think everybody has opportunities whether it's your parents, your teachers, your friends, right? Um, the question is, you know, do you see it as an opportunity or do you see it as an obstacle or a threat? And I think the only thing I can say is that it, it rarely goes wrong. And even when it goes wrong, it may set you up better for opportunities in the future. Thank you for sharing. This is uh, something I think people can take to heart and also learn from it. And it might also inform how you teach and what you teach nowadays. Can you give us a few insights in your principles as a professor and as a teacher? Yeah. So I think the one I really like is more the Socratic style, is teaching by asking questions. Now, clearly, we need to provide some content as well. But what I really like to do is push people's thinking. And the Socratic style does that very much. So what do you think? Why do you think that? What makes you think that? If you do that, what impact would it have? If it would have that impact, what would that bring about in other people? So really push their thinking in that sense. Force them also to think through how it applies to their own areas, their own life. And what that does is then people don't just get the content or the academic concepts, but they have to really think. So what I hear is it's important that people can apply what they learn and that they have a direct combination to their real life mm -hmm. examples. Absolutely. And, now, um, and it starts with actually using your brain. Now I'm doing this a little bit black and white, so forgive me for that. But if you purely lecture and students purely take notes to regurgitate content on an exam, I doubt how much learning is actually taking place. It's when you make them think, when they have to think on their own, then I think the material becomes their own and then they can apply it to their lives. There is then, particularly also in a, a corporate environment, often this question, how do you measure results? Or is it possible to measure results from uh, uh, learning as an adult in a corporate environment leadership? Now let me preface this with uh, 
one of my favorite guys, Mr. Einstein, who said that not everything you measure matters and not everything that matters can be measured. That said, of course, we try to measure learning. In a traditional environment, exams are a way to measure learning. Now, corporates are probably more interested in different assessments of learning, not just regurgitation. To me, I look for engagement in class as measure number one, and I look especially at the questions people ask, because that tells me they're curious and they want to learn more. Of course, we do measurement in terms of the feedback sheets on a scale of one to five. How do you rate this? How do you rate that? Of course, we get it from the clients, but I also get the feedback from the coaches to see what people retain and what they are applying. Of course, very popular these days is NPS, the Net Promoter Scores, where we look at would people recommend us three, four months after they have obtained the knowledge. And the ultimate measure clearly is repeat business. Because, you know, the old sales saying is you can sell a fool something once, but it would be really be a fool if he would buy twice when he doesn't like it. So I am very much interested in impact, but I think you also need to have the faith that what you teach, what you prepare, what you see as relevant for that context matters. So there's a little bit of faith, a little bit of measurement. And for me, as a responsible person in a corporate environment, it's also important what I see in the firm. Is there some changes? Is there something I can hear from people and maybe even hear from their direct reports? And that's also an important point of results and measurement. You've been teaching leadership for many years. Did you see fundamental changes in leadership approaches? Absolutely. And I've been now teaching for over 35 years. And just to name a few of the changes that I've seen, one important one, I think, is to go from more directive leadership to more participative leadership, to really bring in the perspectives of the people that work with you. From a very individual focus on leadership to one more focused on interaction and engagement, especially in the old days, it was looking for the key leadership qualities studies on intelligence, even on height, how often they spoke. But I think that interaction has become much more important. From a top-down approach to leadership to one that combines top-down with bottom-up. From developing as leaders vision and strategy to also seeing the importance of implementation as well. One of my favorite topics over the last six, seven years, from looking at strategy and culture as completely separate to really focus on how do you align strategy and culture. My colleague George Colreiser and Susan Goldsworthy challenged the notion of dare to care to say care to dare. And the fundamental change there is if we care for people, then we can also challenge them to go beyond maybe what they thought possible. And clearly within COVID, that has become even more important and relevant. So what I hear is that this aspect of psychological safety, of taking care of people and bringing them to the best performance they can deliver. That's a very important piece. Yeah, I wouldn't even call it very important. I think we can say this is essential. If you really want to get at the full potential of the people that work for you, give them the safety to express themselves, express not only their ideas and how they think things can be done better, 
but also when they're worried, when they're concerned, when they have fears. Because then, as a leader, then you can work with it. But if they all hold it back, you can't. If you really want people to develop to their full potential, psychological safety is essential. We sometimes talk about managers and we sometimes talk about leaders. What is the difference? Is there a difference between managing and between leading or not? Yes. And I think over the last 20 years, we've done a bit of a disservice to management. So leadership tends to be more about the sexy parts of leadership, right? It tends to be about vision, strategy, breakthrough innovations, new product market combinations, new business models, you know, very exciting. Management tends to be more associated with the running of the day-to-day -day operations, implementation of strategy and managing people. And I think if we all reflect even a little bit on where we sit and what matters on the day-to-day -day basis, is that relationship with your boss, with your leader. On a day-to-day -day basis, this determines your happiness, your willingness, like you said, on the psychological safety, to contribute fully. Now, clearly, strategy, vision, breakthrough innovation is very important. But if you don't have the management skills, then you're not creating the foundation to deliver on that vision, strategy, and breakthrough. And just imagine if you have someone only in the clouds with vision, strategy, I think you're going to have a leader without followers. Now, also, if you have a leader who is only doing the management, you may lose your motivation because you don't see a clear future. So both is important. You have yes. to have management and you have to have leadership. Absolutely. Is there any difference in cultures and regions? Because we work with many different leaders who might also have very different backgrounds in their upbringing and in their beliefs. Yes, and uh, that's a, another great question. And if you look at some of the work that uh, Geert Hofstede did great uh, research on that, and where he looked at differences around things like power distance where in certain countries it is more common to respect those with more authority and to do what they say. Clearly, in a country like the Netherlands, power distance is smaller. You have also differences on the extent to which individualism versus collectivism. In some of the more Asian countries, it's more important to take care of the community and the collective rather than put the individual on a pedestal. You have differences in terms of masculinity and femininity, which in this context refers to masculinity being more competitive and femininity to be more collaborative. So there are cultural differences. That said, I think we're talking quite a bit about style. If I think about fundamentally what you want to do with leadership and what people expect, I think there's lots of more commonalities building a meaningful business, creating value for your customers, wanting to be useful and respected, wanting to learn, to grow, and to build things with others. I would say those are pretty universal values. So it's important to look for things which connect us, not for things which oh. are separating us. Thank you so much for saying that. I think we spend way too much time on looking for the differences and way too little time on understanding our commonalities and what we can do together. Moving to an organizational level, Robert, how important is for the growth and for the success of an 
organization, the leadership culture. And what is a leadership culture? Well, thank you, Marianne. As you well know, uh, I'm completely biased in answering this question since I've done quite a bit of research on organizational culture, published a book on it. My answer will not surprise you, and that is culture is absolutely key. One of my favorite definitions of culture that it is what people do when they think nobody is watching. And I think that's a great definition in the sense that you want to think through as a business is how do I want people to behave and why? How do I want them to interact with each other, with the clients, with the suppliers, with up and down in the organization? And then can you make it part of their DNA? Because if it's part of the DNA, then it becomes part of what you do every day. And then you don't need monitoring systems, you don't need special trainings. And that creates a huge competitive advantage for an organization. And I think if you look at Julius Baer, and I love these values that you have of passion, care, and excellence. If we really can see these in action in everything people do, then I think you're automatically delivering on one of the key value propositions of Julius Baer, which is the care for the clients with passion for what they do. So this alignment, I think, is what you are looking for. Of course, you need to get it in the DNA. Uh, but if you do, you create a very powerful competitive advantage for the organization. So indeed, an overarching purpose we can also follow, something which we all dream and work for. We just touched on some recent events and a very recent event was a pandemic which hit the whole world. And I think your organization, IMD, our organization, Julius Baer, has greatly adjusted and adapted to it. And also leadership has adjusted. Is this here to stay, this hybrid work, virtual leadership, uh, having people partly here and there, Or is it going to be back? And what is the changes we have seen? So that's a tough, tough question, Marianne. It's a tough question because I have an answer that I would like to see from every company. And that is that the changes should be here to last. Not literally, but really considering the way we work. When we bring people to the office, when we don't need them at the office. And Michael Watkins and I, you referred to the article call it very simple, the off-site is the new on-site and the on-site is the new off-site. And it is a way of making people think through that if you bring people to the office, be clear on why they should be back. And for us, it's about collaboration, it's about innovation, culture building, and getting people dedicated to the organization. So that's number one. You know, make sure we take the benefit of what we've learned. You want to take that a step further in the sense that you also want to take forward all of the great innovations that we have seen over those last two and a half years. And, you know, I sit in a very privileged position because I don't just work with Julius Baer, with many other companies as well. But the innovation in a crisis is quite amazing in many respects. Even something as simple as electronic signatures, which have existed since 1995, but all of a sudden facilitate a lot of the workflow in companies like Julius Baer, and there have been many more. Now I see in some cases people going back to physical signatures, and I'm like, hey guys, wake up, it's working. So to your question, are the changes going to last? Yes, please, make sure they last, but it's going to require an effort from the leaders to make sure that we capture the 
product service innovations as well as the way of work innovations in a meaningful way so that we benefit from them also in the future. So it's also about not falling back into old <laughs> habits. I could not have said it better. So Robert, let's reflect on your MIT Sloan Management Review article. We already heard it's entitled The Future of Team Leadership is Multimodal, which you co-authored with Michael Watkins, another professor at IMD. Can you a little bit elaborate? It's about modalities. And the two basic modalities in which we have been communicating is either virtually or face-to-face -face in person. And virtually then is, you know, think about Zoom, Teams, WebEx, and, and all of those tools. And in-person has been then the contrast to that. The reason we use that rather than hybrid, because hybrid is bringing multiple modalities together, just to make sure we have clarity on the concepts that we use. That is important because what we did in this article is then think through how these modalities serve us best. Right, and we talked about learning from uh, COVID and our experiences. And what we learned when we reviewed with surveys of managers is that virtual works really well for quite a few of our management activities, especially if I can put it that way, the more simple ones, whether it's information exchange, basic meetings, uh, but also even one-on-one -on -one coaching and some of those individual activities, one-on-one -on -one meetings. Other activities we've found that the virtual world is not as well suited for, whether it's brainstorming, innovation, team building, a variety of other activities. So when we then juxtaposed the modalities with the kind of leadership requirements, we came up with this framework of the four C's and linked it to the different modalities. So we say coaching you can do in person or virtually. We have the conductor as kind of, you know, running an efficient meeting online. But then you have, in contrast, the catalyst, who is the manager who brings people together physically to do the more, I would say, difficult activities around team building, creating new value, doing innovation, those types of activities. And then we added one which has existed before, but we kind of came to the insight that with more facility in using virtual tools can be done even better. And that is to champion your people and your business unit. Because what happens with the virtual tools, I can join in in meetings for short amounts of time, and I can also allow my people to join in in maybe higher level meetings for a short amount of time, thereby championing both the wonderful individual qualities that they have and the qualities of the work that they are doing. So if you put that together, it forces people to really think through when do I lead in what way, using what modality. Very interesting. As you know, we use at Julius Baer the adaptive leadership model as our leadership framework. And this is another area of reflection a leader has to do. I have to understand in what situation do I use what way of even communicating with people. I know a lot of your cases because I've been privileged to see and sometimes even participate in some of them. So what is the value of these cases and what can you share about them? 
Yes, we love cases. Uh, and of course, Harvard was one of the first to really introduce it. But simply put, cases are about what we call vicarious learning. And vicarious learning means that I learn from the experiences of others without having to go through their experiences myself. And that is fantastic. So you can do this at an organizational level by looking at cases about companies that are either inside your industry or outside of your industry. You can do it by leadership cases about experience maybe leaders have in setting up a new business or dealing with difficult personalities. So you can learn from that. And of course, what is nice about the case study, it isn't just the case study, but it's also the discussion that you have with your colleagues in the program about that. And a very powerful way of using cases is what we call life cases. So you, Marianne, what are you dealing with? And we force you to write it up already to get clarity in your own thinking. One of my favorite sayings is you do not know what you think until you see what you say. So that clarity. And, but then for you to present your case to some colleagues, which then gives you the opportunity to get their inputs from their experiences on what you can do about your life a situation yourself. So many different types of cases, each serving a unique but very useful purpose. Very interesting because, again, it nicely ties into adaptive leadership with taking a balcony view. And you don't have always to be on the dance floor yourself, so you can look at other people dancing to see what was the result they achieved. Oh, I love that metaphor. And if you think about the life cases, <laughs> you're almost reversing it by asking others to sit on the balcony and look at your case. So it's a reverse vision of the adaptive leadership. But also, it can be quite a revealing one when you have people sitting on the balcony and then giving feedback on what they see in your case. It takes courage, I think. Yes, it takes, takes courage. And also what... The other topic, which I cannot stress enough, the psychological safety in the group for you to be open to the views from the balcony. Also now a question which probably gets us even higher on the balcony. We have now looked at leadership cases of individuals, but there's also this question of the organizational level. And we already talked about leadership culture being important, but uh, How is it shaped and how is success or failure of an organization coming together from your academic view? Yeah, so it's a really interesting literature. First of all, a strong culture where people hold very much many of the same values can be both a source of success and failure. It can be an incredible source of success if the path and the environment is fairly stable, because then you can sure to deliver in a meaningful and efficient way. Of course, it's a source of failure if the environment is changing quickly and the culture does not adapt. Where we really see the power of culture is when you look at the M&A literature, the mergers and acquisitions literature. And one of the statistics, if I remember well, is that about 75% of acquisitions do not deliver on their promise. And one of the big reasons that doesn't happen is that you don't get the alignment of the cultures on the buying and from the acquired company in that alignment. And then people are just working on different levels. And this is also cultures, you know, very important for strategy implementation, because ultimately it's alignment on behavior, treating people with respect and how they expect to be treated. And here you have the famous saying that culture eats strategy for breakfast. Now, clearly this saying was invented by culture researchers. Let's be honest about that. 
Uh, clearly, strategy and culture are both important. But when culture aligns with your strategy, then you get the kind of implementation that's going to get the meaningful delivery of the results that the strategy promised. If they are not aligned, clearly culture can kill any opportunity for success. And it's very important to be conscious of this fact. Oh, I, yes, that's a key point. Mo quite often the culture is unconscious. So that's a really good point that you make there. To what extent do we actually know what our culture is and do we take the time to reflect whether it supports our strategy or not? So yeah, thank you for bringing that up because too often it's unconscious. When it's unconscious, we forget, but the unconscious can bite us in the, in the rear. <laughs> Robert, we have already mentioned a number of times now the adaptive leadership framework, which we use a lot. You use it in your teaching. We use it as an underlying model at Julius Baer and in the leadership development. Uh, can you give a little bit insights and also about maybe Ron Heifetz from the Harvard Kennedy School, who was, I would call him the father of the adaptive leadership model? Yeah, I actually started becoming a fan of Ronnie Heifetz even before the adaptive leadership framework was developed. One of my all-time favorite books is Leadership Without Easy Answers. Now, I must say, his writing since then has improved dramatically, but it's still one of my favorite books, in the sense that what he really foreshadowed is a different way of thinking about leadership. And that, as a leader, you don't always have to have the answers. But as the environment is changing, and he has some really interesting examples about communities losing their core industry, How does an environment, how does an organization adapt? Too often in the past, we would be looking at the leaders to come up with the answers. And one of the interesting things he does there is to help leaders think through how you use that community, how you use them as a resource to also come up with the answers to the changes that are required. So adaptive leadership is that ability to see like he later says so eloquently, from a balcony perspective, what's happening, not just with the people, but the surrounding context. And then how do you use those people, and maybe also some outside resources, to rethink the way in which you create value for that community or organization? I think we both have the same passion and the same estimation for that thought. Coming to nowadays, because as you mentioned, this was already probably 25, 30 years ago when Ron started talking about it. What do you think today, when you look into the future, is new or maybe leading the way in leadership development? Yeah, we have to be a little bit careful with that question. But let's say the higher up you go into the organization, the more, in my view, and I think this builds nicely on the work of Heifetz, It's about leaders who enable others to be successful. And I use the word enable on purpose. Enable in terms of what we discussed earlier, psychological safety, which is necessary at all levels of the organization. But the higher up you go, you, the more tools you get. And those tools include the structure of the environment, the processes, the reward systems, and the technology. So I want... In my programs, I challenge leaders to really think through, are you creating an environment 
where those people really can contribute to their full potential. At Julius Baer, Robert, we have created with your support and your guidance a curriculum for leadership development, which covers the whole spectrum from future leaders to executives. Why do you think is this important and how can it be achieved to really have a structured approach across the whole firm? Well, first of all, my compliments on doing it across the board. In that sense, you ensure that people get a common language and common way of approaching things. So that's already fantastic. And one thing to keep in mind here is that this education curriculum that you and I and Julius Baer and IMD have put together, it really fits nicely with what the Center for Creative Leadership once said is the 70-20-10 rule. Right? And where maybe education and training is only 10% of what people do in terms of learning, whereas 70% of their knowledge comes from the experiences that they have at jobs and another 20% from developmental relationships. That said, you cannot underestimate the amplifying effect that that 10% has. So I think what we did in the curriculum is not just make sure it applies to all levels, but also making sure that over time people really think through on how to bring that learning into the 20% of developmental relationships and the 70% of translating that into challenging experience and assignments. And I think it also has to be dynamic. It cannot be a static thing to do all the time the same. Yes and no, because that's the hard part, right? Because do things have changed over the time since we started. At the other hand, we also need to pick up on the topics of the day. So I can tell you when we started in 2018, for no surprising reason, we had nothing about COVID or multimodal or hybrid learning. Right? So we have adapted to those as well. But it's the balancing act is to make sure that there's a common experience so that we have that impact that we talked about in the question before and to stay up to date so people consider what they do relevant to their own experiences and learning. So what are these most important aspects which we have to cover in a good leadership curriculum? We need some uh, common frameworks that stay the same regardless of the changing circumstances. So for me, absolutely key is that we have a common definition of leadership. And my definition of leadership is to create value beyond expectations through people. And I think that captures a lot of the things that we want to do at IMD, but also at Julius Baer. First, it's about creating value. Number one, creating value is about short-term, long-term, not one or the other. And it's also about financial and non-financial. Clearly, we need to deliver on the financial results. It's the oxygen that keeps an organization alive. But it's also things like people development and making sure that the organization is relevant for the people of the future. It is beyond expectation. I love this as a challenge. And beyond expectations, especially from the perspective, beyond what you as a leader expect. Because if we focus on that, I'm sorry to say, but then we are only beholden to your imagination. I would venture that if you get people involved and you give them that psychologically safe environment, you give them the tools and you've hired the right people, they are going to surprise you by the value they create. That's also, like we discussed in the previous episode, why enabling leadership is so important. It's not about how smart or creative you are. It's about how smart your unit and how creative your unit is. We talked already about adaptive leadership. 
And I want to go a little bit deeper into these two aspects of reflection and action in leadership situations. And you already, in your last answer, gave some of the good examples where this is needed. So how can this be achieved? Well, the easy part of the answer is that if you're always in action mode and you never reflect, you probably never learn. So we have definitely built in moments where people have an opportunity to reflect. We do that in the online modules, where we basically follow a script of learn, apply, reflect. So we give them content in short video clips. We ask them to apply that in a concrete situation in the organization and reflect in it in writing in what they have learned. We do it in terms of a 360-degree feedback tool, which is clearly, you know, it's not always easy, but it's a key reflection tool to understand how other people see you. It's kind of that reverse balcony view that we talked about earlier. We have live cases incorporated that we discussed previously as well, where you get an outside in view in a safe environment on your leadership and the challenges that you're trying to tackle. And you get another way of a safe environment is an external coach, someone who has the opportunity to give you that safe space where you don't even need to be concerned that someone in Julius Bear would find out what you are concerned about, but you can reflect on that with a very experienced coach. We also hear a lot about the leader as a coach. And thinking of the environment we are in, it's increasingly difficult to find talent and it's increasingly important to develop talent. How can you as a leader, become a coach, and how effective is that? That's a great question. Um, now, coaching means many, many different things to different people. Uh, in England, if you get a coach, you get on a bus. So there's also interesting different cultural definitions of coaching. But if you think about you know, the definition I really like is that coaching is about enabling people to unlock their hidden potential by encouraging, challenging, developing and believing in them. And I think what's captured in this is, is very consistent with the discussions you and I have been having. It's basically the care to dare framework uh, in that. Now, key to add to that is in coaching, the responsibility for the development always stays with the person being coached. So it's really providing that environment where they search for and find their potential. And, you know, when you care for them in that way, to give them that freedom, you can also challenge them to pursue new horizons, new possibilities. And finding their own solutions is key to that. Now, to your comment now, in can leaders be coaches? Because that's basically what you're asking. And in that sense, I think sometimes we have created an environment that moves people away from coaching capabilities because we like to promote people who have shown to be experts. If you're an expert, and now I ask you to coach, you're going to be sitting with someone who may not have your expertise. You may become impatient and start giving the answers, at which point the coaching has ended already. So I think the way we bring people up in organizations, where legitimacy comes from expertise and knowledge, in a sense moves them away from the coaching capabilities, which is more about being there for others. So it's absolutely crucial, but it's not an easy road. 
Can you give our listeners some advice how to achieve this? Because I guess there's a lot of people who are experts and leaders at the same time listening to that podcast. What I would say to them is you need to really shift your mindset. I think as experts, we look to give the correct answer. As coaches, we want to enable people to find the best answer for themselves. So the mindset shift would need to go from, I want to have the best answer, to I want to develop the best people, and I want to develop people to their best potential. What I always think is also listening skills. That's a very important first step to go forward as what you just said. Absolutely. I think quite a few people confuse listening with not speaking while someone else talks, uh, which is a good start. But to really hear what someone else says, I would recommend trying active listening, where before you start providing your own input, you first make sure you truly have heard what the other person said. That would be a really good start to become a better listener. Are there any leaders which are your role models, which you have in mind when you think about successful and good leaders? Yeah. Now, I have quite a few that I very much admire. They, of course, all still have some weak sides, but I admire them for different reasons. I could mention Case at Heart, who currently is the CEO of Carlsberg. He, I think, is a good example of balancing care to dare and reflection and action. Okay. Uh, so... When we think about adaptive leaders, he is great. Uh, the way he handled uh, COVID, the way he handled uh, also the situation with uh, Russia and the Ukraine, because Carlsberg had quite a big operation in Russia, I've been very impressed with. I've been very impressed with Feike Siebesma, who used to be the CEO of DSM. He was one of the, I think, front runners in terms of incorporating ESG, not as a CSR activity in the organization, but truly as a business opportunity. And he would very much say, you know, ESG is part of what the business should be doing, not just a separate activity. Another one is Pedro Zinner, who just stepped down as CEO of Ineva. Uh, it's just amazing how he took a company that was bankrupt and created one that is not only strong in capital management, but also in terms of culture. And I mean this as a compliment. He's leaving a company behind that is much stronger than when he arrived but that is also fit to continue without him. And that is, I think, for me, quite a compliment for anyone in a leadership position. And let me end with someone who I, you know, inspires me uh, every day is Delphine Traore. She is the CEO of Allianz Africa. Woman, CEO, inside one of the major insurance companies in the world, responsible for insurance business in 14 countries in Africa and the way that she has integrated ESG in everything she does is incredible. How she's building financial literacy in these different countries in Africa, also, you know, for young women and girls is fantastic. Um, and on top of that, she's making sure that her children are proud of her and that they also themselves, when they grow up, want to go give, you know, great business and give back to Africa. About purpose and vision of a company and how to anchor and implement it in a strategy, how important it is to connect these things, and how important it is for people to have this. What are your thoughts here? 
The simple answer is that you want to make these things come alive wherever people work and in ways that builds on what they already do. And I think that's a part that's often missing in organizations. At IMD, we talk about challenge what is and inspire what could be. And I love it because it gives me a direction for my teaching. And I can also guarantee you that with 50 professors, the implementation of that differs from professor to professor, but something we can all bring to the classroom. It can also be done by anyone in our organization. Challenge what is, inspire what could be. So it brings you know, a cultural awareness that that is part of what you're supposed to do. It's part of what we appreciate and it's part of what's going to bring our organization forward. I do it in the way in which I teach. The cases that I bring to bring in purpose and strategy into everything you do comes out of there. I also do it by being on the EDI Council, the Equity, Diversity and Inclusion Council, because I, it's very personally important to me that we also challenge the way we provide inclusion for diverse perspectives and diverse people in our organization. Like many organizations, I think we're doing okay on diversity, but diversity without inclusion doesn't bring much value. So I think, you know, everybody will have to do it in their own way. But if we all find our own way, it's going to have a huge impact on the organization. The second part is, of course, that it also needs to have an impact on the interface between where you sit and the clients. And I'm really proud that we have as our purpose then to develop leaders who transform organizations and contribute to society. By the way, you could almost say this is a version of your own purpose statement, you know, create value beyond wealth, right? It's help people protect, preserve, grow their wealth, but also go beyond that. And that, I think, is also something people can really contribute to. And of course, whether you sit in IT and operations or the front office, the interpretation and the implementation of that will be different. So that's very important to have it and also to live it. And still many organizations seem to struggle, particularly with talent selection, possibly with talent retention, and also with breaking these old patterns and biases, which naturally run through the whole organization and through all of us. So what are your thoughts here to move us forward into the next decade? Uh, that's such a great question. You know, old patterns, biases, habits. I think we all know how difficult it is because at 11.59 p.m. on December 31st, we all come up with great intentions about what to do. And by January 15th, we're back to the old patterns. So there's no easy answer, like Ronnie Heifetz would say, <laughs> but it's really about putting in the time and the effort to do it. Uh, and one of the great books uh, I read recently can be really incredibly helpful in that. It's called Atomic Habits. And that's just start small, but do it. And one of my favorite examples that really kind of hit me was that if you start on the fitness regime, which many people do on January 1st, they go for two hours to the gym, they work out hard, they're sore for a week, and then they don't come back. What he suggests actually is go to the gym, work out for five minutes, go home. Next day, go to the gym, work out for five minutes, go home. But don't stay a minute longer. What is important is not the workout. 
to create the habit. What's important is first to have the habit of going to the gym. And I really like this as an analogy. If we're going to break down these key biases that you talked about, whether it's implementation of a purpose, which sometimes generates more cynicism than enthusiasm, right? Do it small. So the hard work is for you, Marianne, inside the Leadership Academy, do something that brings the purpose alive. But do something small, but do it frequently. So I think that is a one way uh, of doing that. Now, the other part that we, of course, these people are less and less willing to fully dedicate their lives to organizations, maybe like when you and I were growing up, that was kind of the expectation. But that can also be an advantage because it would mean that they're more likely to bring the outside in as well. And you and I are quite passionate about bringing the outside in. It can be from a way of working. It can be from consumer trends as well. So partly it's also maybe that our own framing from a leadership perspective changes as a way to bring new ideas into the organization as well. So changing your own perspective is just as important as changing someone else. Let's start with the first. <laughs> <laughs> so I reframe. Changing yourself is probably more important. Though. Yes, because, well, it does several things, right? First of all, you show the example. Because if I say, Marianne, you should empower people more, but I don't empower you, what are you going to do? You say, you know, this is nonsense. He's just talking concepts. If, however, I change, probably a good chance that you think, hey, maybe I should as well. And that probably also influences the leadership culture of a company. It's probably done one by one by one. So what is this leadership culture? We have talked about it before. And why is it so important for the success of a company? Well, I already said, right, culture is what people do when they think nobody is watching. Now, how do I get you to do something when I'm not there? Well, for that, it needs to be yours. For it to be yours, you need to believe I'm serious. For you to believe I'm serious, you need to see me living what I expect you to do. And I think if I do the right thing, you do the right thing, we create, first of all, an attractive environment. Number two, you like to work there and you do what you believe is right. And then basically, in the process, we are creating a fantastic employee value proposition. That's going to serve our clients very well. Now, how do we get there? First, are you clear on how you want people to behave and why? And clearly, the why should be aligned with vision and strategy. Number two, are your structures, processes, technologies, and rewards there to reinforce the desired way of behaving? If I tell you, Marion, oh, teams is important, collaboration is important, and then you get an individual bonus... Which one are you going to believe? Well, I think people believe the rewards, not the, the fancy talk. So you need to align that. Then I think first you start with the role modeling, but at some point you want to incorporate the desired behaviors also in the performance evaluations. And if you really want to get people to pay attention, fire a good performer who is not living the values. That will get people's attention in a hurry. Robert, you are a radical person, aren't you? <laughs> Quite interesting. So there is a lot of uh, things to consider. 
And now I'm thinking more of young people who develop their leadership practice and still might want to have more of this practice and this thinking. What advice would you give people who are in that phase of their careers? Yeah, I think first of all, let's stay very, very simple. Do what you're supposed to do and do it well. Why do I say that? Because it gives you legitimacy for all the other steps I'm now going to suggest to you. You need to be valued. Once you're valued, people will give you more opportunities. Second, how do you create your value? Well, introduce, where possible, improvements, innovation that benefits the clients, the company, your unit, your colleagues, and yourself. In other ways, be a positive contributor who wants to help others. Third, what is a great activity, a great way to do it, and you, know, you talked about the balcony, but we can reverse that again. Look at your role and contributions from your boss's perspective. Of course, when we look at ourselves, we think we do great work, but you know, take that other perspective once in a while to see what that looks like in the larger organizational context, and then think through how you can be more helpful when you take that balcony perspective for, on yourself from the boss's perspective. Okay. Then when you're looking from the boss's perspective at the organization, think through what skills, competencies, and mindsets you need to develop to be successful in their role. This is a way to really think about the future and your development. The other thing, of course, that we really want to see is that bring in outside perspectives, new ideas from outside, other experiences that you've had, other companies that you've worked for, conferences you've gone to, uh, maybe what your friends do. Bring in the outside into the company. Sixth, okay, make sure you keep learning and developing. Of course, the previous points point all in that direction. But as you're doing that, keep having fun, uh, not just at work, but in all aspects of your life. Uh, you know, don't go for the, you know, 20 hours a day driving yourself crazy, not having that life outside of work. And seventh, and this kind of is nice that it brings also back to my own life experience. Don't be afraid to take on what looks like a challenging but exciting opportunity. Because points one to six will have prepared you to take advantage of these opportunities. It's a nice wrap-up of your own career and how you took these opportunities which came along and which you had not really expected to be there, but you saw them and followed up on them. Yes, it served me well. <laughs> That's right. Maybe to the end, I want to look more into the future, Robert. So what is in your mind, and maybe it's the crystal ball you will need to tell us, what is in the coming years What will we see? What is leadership or development of leaders going to? And how can we prepare for it? I definitely don't have a crystal ball. So <laughs> that's for sure. Uh, I think what we have learned over the last three years, that it's very difficult to see what's coming. And that the best thing we can do is to be prepared for multiple futures. So in a sense, the answer to this question is a little bit the same as the answer to the question before about young people, it's a little bit paradoxical advice. And that is, you know, be the best you can be for your clients and yourself today, while always being ready to shift gears and take advantage of new opportunities that are coming your way tomorrow. And to give you a personal example, a colleague of mine, when I was on the management team of IMD, I was the Dean of Faculty, I was the Dean of Programs and Innovation. And this was in 2012 he started building courses online. 
This was in response to Coursera at the time. And of course, we didn't want to be Coursera. But still, we wanted to have more of this pedagogy also through video learning. And, you know, thanks to him, thanks to what he built, thanks to the leadership team supporting him in that, I think we were more ready for COVID and going online and virtual than many other organizations were. So already exploring that in 2012 and building those capabilities, even though they were very small, helped us make that transition to more virtual learning in a much faster way than many other organizations could. So what I hear is luck favors the prepared. You have to prepare for the future and you have to constantly learn and adapt. And still you also have to have a little bit of luck and a little bit of good fortune. And that's also true in leadership and in the development in leadership. Absolutely. Luck is, you know, where the prepared mind, the prepared organization gets to take advantage of the opportunities and the crises that come their way. And they certainly will come again. Oh, yes. Uh, that's the one thing we know for sure. Thank you so much, Robert, for sharing from your rich and deep experience in leadership and leadership development. It was a great pleasure. Great pleasure here as well, Marianne, and thank you for your great questions. Get ready for the day ahead. Moving Markets is a daily market news briefing from Julius Baer's leading experts. You'll hear all about the latest ups and downs across asset classes, the underlying drivers, and our thoughts on where markets are heading. Search for Moving Markets on your favorite podcast player. You have been listening to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. To learn more about Julius Baer, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at www.juliusbaer.com. We will be back with a brand new episode soon. This is a podcast disclaimer. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast constitute marketing material and are not the result of independent financial or investment research. The podcast content is intended for information purposes only and does not constitute an offer, a recommendation or an invitation by or on behalf of Julius Baer to buy or sell any securities, security-based derivatives or other products or to participate in any particular trading strategy in any jurisdiction. Julius Baer does not accept liability for any loss arising from the use of the podcast content. Please refer to www.juliusbear.com forward slash legal forward slash podcasts for further important legal information.